Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast and joining me as co-host and fellow lifelong Houston sports junkie, Stephen Kerr. And Stephen, in our Throwback Thursday podcast last week, we looked at the anniversary of the Samson buzzer beater, Ralph's big buzzer beater over the Lakers, which put the Rockets in the 86 finals. And there was another big Rockets anniversary this past week. But before we get to it, any memories of that Samson shot or the 86 season in general? Well, I, I was in Austin by then, uh, which is where I am now. I was unemployed. <laughs> I remember that because, I mean, that was the year I was trying to string any jobs together I could. I mainly was a freelance uh, sports writer then. Didn't get to cover the Rockets. I mostly covered UT sports. But I remember that night, I for some reason, I I watched the game on television, but I didn't watch the whole thing. I think I might have been, maybe I was out on one of my jobs or something, because I came home and I put the game on and I think it was like in the midway in the fourth quarter when I finally started watching it. And that's when I saw the shot. And I just, I, I just about came unglued. It, it's a good thing I lived in a house by myself, Robert, because even then the neighbors probably heard me all the way down the street. I was hooping and hollering so much after, I mean, how could you not? It was so unexpected. I mean, nine times out of 10, Ralph is going to miss that shot. But he made it, and not only did he make it, but he ended, you know, the series was over and the Rockets were moving on. It was just so unexpected and so shocking that there's no way you can ever forget it if you're a Rockets fan. Well, I I wish I was as lucky as you because I I think I saw, I feel like I saw most of the game and then late in the game because this game started so late. It was in L.A., uh, yeah, I think I, it was at 10 o'clock at night, it seemed like. It oh, started late. Oh, yeah, it was really late. And, and I fell asleep. I fell asleep, man. I fell asleep. Oh, <laughs> oh, my. You mean you fell asleep and missed the shot live, or you have oh, caught oh, it just before? Uh, oh, I, I I didn't find out about it until I was in school the next day. I was this freshman in high school. <laughs> and, of course, there was no social media, no internet. You know, you read the newspaper. That's, that, was, that was about the only thing you could get. Yeah, I mean, it just it was so late and I know I was trying to stay. I remember I was I was watching it in my bedroom. I specifically remember that. And the other thing is I I rewatched the game a few days ago, Stephen, and if you watch that game, the Rockets, I don't think they were ever ahead until the Samson shot. They they were always like trying to fight back. They were 6, 8, 10 points behind. They could not catch the Lakers. It was it was a tough game. And then, and then Elijah Wan, I'm trying to remember if I was up when Elijah Wan gets thrown out of the game and the fight, which we, we talked about a little bit in the throwback the other day, but yeah, it, it, it was nuts because you, you, you think about it and you're like, well, that's the Lakers and you're, you're, you're behind all the time. And then, and then dream gets thrown out who was just like incredible the whole series. And you're thinking, well, that's probably it. Yeah. Honestly, the whole series was a surprise to me, Robert, just because, I didn't, as much of a Rockets fan I was, I was also realistic. I just, I didn't know that the Rockets could pull it out. And of course they lost game one and you're like, yep, this is pretty predictable. And they just came out and dominated the Lakers. It's the way they, I mean, it was a close series, but it wasn't a close series. And then Ralph Sampson shot, you know, with half a dozen exclamation marks put on that. I just think that the way that whole series went, it, it was really surprising to me really from start to finish. Allen Level made some big plays late in that game, and it was weird because 
Robert Reed had played so well in that series. He was a big key for them. Of course, John Lucas, as we talked about a little bit, and in, in, in the throwback, John Lucas was out for the playoffs with the drug suspension. So Robert Reed started at point guard. And what was really crazy is that Reed, the last few minutes, wasn't playing point guard. It was Allen Level. And then Reed comes back in late in the game. And as Robert reminded us in the show last week, he hit the shot that tied the game. That's right. And a lot of people forget that. It's, it's like you always forget the guy that may have tied the game because you're so concerned with who won the game. But Robert Reed was so instrumental in that series and really for that whole season and just showing his versatility. I mean, Robert Reed playing point guard, if you followed the Rockets for a long time and saw Robert Reed play, it, it, you might have forgotten that. But, <laughs> yeah, that that was quite an enjoyable uh, interview that you had with and brought back some great memories of some of the things he talked about. Yeah, I, I wish I would have talked to him a little bit more. I didn't know how much time he had when we had him. And we talked about some other things in that conversation uh, other than the Rockets, kind of what he was up to. So it was it was brief there at the end, but it was a great little 10 minutes that he gave. And like I said, I, we would have followed some stuff up with that and it, it would have been more extensive. But uh, boy, that, that 86 Rockets season, I mean, I, I think for people that are my age, that's really when you got into that team and you really started to like, oh, I'm, I'm excited about being a Rockets fan because now they have Elijah Wan and Samson. They got the Twin Towers and the future just looked like Hey, th- th- this night might not be one run. This could be we could be seeing, you know, a-, a Golden State era, you know, if you will, or something like that. Yeah, and you know what happened the year after is when the team fell apart with the two drug suspensions and and just the way it happened. I mean, I just always felt, I think, like a lot of people, it almost as if the NBA was conspiring against the Rockets to make sure that they didn't advance and become a dynasty, so that the Lakers and Celtics could continue theirs. I mean, one has to wonder, uh, you know, if something like that happened today, there'd be all kinds of conspiracies conspiracies floating around in social media. But, yeah, it it was such a shame how much promise that team had and then how it just fell apart the year after that. Right. It's just I I love the conversation that I had with with Falcoff because, you know, we got into that because it was a great story on Grantland that I I kept referring to that I think there was a lot of stuff in there that I, I had just either forgotten or maybe didn't even know. So there's a tr- tremendous job that Grantland did several years back, way back. Uh, this was pre-ringer days for Bill Simmons. So uh, it might still be out there. You can go look for it. But, you know, if you didn't listen to the throwback, it's definitely where it still holds up. It's one of my favorite uh, podcasts, I, the, one that, the ones that I did with Falcoff. And then uh, a couple of years earlier, I had talked to Robert Reed. So that was all good. And then when I was talking to you this week, there was a, we go, oh, there's another anniversary because it was 25 years ago uh, this past week when Akeem made that 95 league MVP, David Robinson. He made him look like a high school center in that series against the Spurs. And Mario Eli remembers what happened prior to game one. He said, quote, and this is great, Stephen. He said, I just remembered when the starting five was being called. Dream smacked my hand so hard. He was a very focused and driven man at the time. It was the, one of the most focused times I've ever seen Dream. You saw something in his eyes you hadn't seen in a while. We all said, somebody is in trouble. And that somebody was David Robinson. And you know that the fact is, is Hakeem tried to play down that he was not that upset about not winning the MVP. You know, he kept denying it, denying it, denying it. But if you know Hakeem, 
and how competitive he was, you knew that that wasn't true because he certainly didn't play like, I mean, he came out playing on a mission to prove, well, okay, you may have been voted the MVP, but I'm going to be the MVP of this playoffs and we're going to win another championship. And that's exactly what they did. I mean, Hakeem had three 40 point games in that series and another game where he scored 39 points. I mean, that is just incredible. I don't care. You know, yeah, maybe Michael Jordan could do that, but you, you could easily just barely count on one hand how many players could do that, and Hakeem did. Yeah, after he threw that 41 and 16, 41.16 rebounds in game one, David Robinson had one of the all-time great quotes. He said, I don't even know how I can say it with a straight face, but I thought most of the time I defended him pretty well. <laughs> 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 well, he also said in game after game four, you know, when the Spurs were coming back, well, you know, maybe we figured this out. Hakeem isn't. I mean, he's not going to score 40 points every game. He is human. Well, we found out what happened in game five, right? <laughs> yeah. And at the end of game one, I, I should add on to this. Kenny Smith said, quote, uh, Hakeem looks over and goes, Kenny, I'm going to his house to get my award. <laughs> yeah, I think that's quite appropriate because uh yeah Hakeem was definitely the MVP of that series and certainly the postseason and it, I just you know I remember because I was doing the morning show at a radio station at a oldie station here in Austin and so I would stay up late you know watching those games even all the way through the championship series had to get up at you know 3 three thirty in the morning but I didn't care because this was I, you couldn't possibly miss this kind of action and I'm almost ashamed to say this, Robert, but I almost, and I put that in quotes, almost, especially in that game five, felt sorry for David Robinson. Almost. Yeah, not no, quite. No, no, no. <laughs> not quite. No. I mean, if it had been anybody else, now David Robinson, like I got to say, one of the classiest guys in sports ever, but the Spurs and the Rockets, you know, I, I couldn't stand the Spurs back then, bitter rivals of the Rockets, so... That's why I said I almost felt sorry for him, just the way Hakeem manhandled him. Yeah, I remember uh, I was at the Super Bowl back in 2004. I was covering that for uh, Fox Sports New England, and I saw David Robinson out there before the game, and he was just signing autographs out in front of NRG Stadium at the t Well, it was Reliant Stadium at the time, but, you know, just he was always a class guy. So it wasn't a guy that I just hated, but... Yeah, it was just great to see. I mean, I was like, oh, yeah, let's let 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 them talk about David Robinson a little bit more because uh, Akeem Olajuwon's still the guy. And it's crazy because five of the six regular season meetings before that series, the Spurs had won. They played six times during the regular season back in, in those days. And Olajuwon averaged 35 points. And this is in the series. He averaged 35 points, 12.5 rebounds, 4.2 blocks while hitting 56% of his shots. Robinson's numbers not exactly awful. He averaged twenty three point eight points, but that was you know about twelve less than Dream. And then he grabbed eleven point three rebounds, uh, had two point two blocks, but much less on his field goal percentage. He was only forty five percent on his shot. So Elijah Wan just not only offensively but kind of defensively shut him down in a lot of ways that series too. Yeah, he did, and I think Robinson in Game Six he had nineteen points, but. I don't know, he was something like uh, 6 of 19 shooting or something, and his shooting percentage wasn't that great at all. Um, yeah, it was just a, a series to remember, and, and it, it made me start to wonder 
after that Spurs series, like, you know, could it possibly be that Houston is finally due to win back-to-back championships? I mean, what was also kind of unexpected about that, Robert, is the Spurs were, you know, the top team in the league, and the Rockets, you know, they, they had kind of a they, – they had to fight and scratch in that 95 season. They weren't dominant from start to finish. So the Spurs were definitely way ahead of them in the standings. And as you mentioned, they won five of the six regular season meetings. So that whole series was kind of unlikely, but it certainly set the stage for the Rockets winning their second championship by far. Yeah, this was pre-Popovich Spurs. And and speaking of uh, coaching greats, and this is a guy, this guy's a Hall of Famer, Jerry Sloan, former Jazz head coach, died this past weekend. But while David Robinson, I didn't hate, I'm like a lot of Rockets fans, not sure I'm going to be sending flowers and condolences to Utah, Stephen. <laughs> well, probably not. I mean, Utah was uh, just some pretty suspect things going there. We talked about it a little on this podcast. and But, you know, you have to grudgingly say Jerry Sloan was, was one of the best coaches that the NBA ever saw. He may not have been a Popovich and certainly wasn't a Phil Jackson, but uh, he was up there. He'd certainly have to be considered one of the top five and certainly some, you know, the job that he did with the jazz and some of the players they had and they, but they did fall short. You know, they, they had promise and, you know, who knows if it hadn't been for the bulls, maybe the jazz would have won at least one championship, but they didn't. So while they did fall short, Jerry Sloan certainly had a long career in the NBA. Yeah. The jazz, they weren't, Dirty like the Pistons, but they were close. They were kind of sneaky dirty. Maybe not on the court. They they were sneaky dirty uh, behind the scenes, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> just just talk, think about the clock situation. Yeah, that was done behind the scenes. Maybe not on the court itself. Yeah, even though I hate, you know, Sloan and his teams and all, I guess I'm not, I'm not going to wish uh, Parkinson's or Louis Body dementia on anybody. I know Louis, De- Louis Body was that. A disease that Robin Williams was dealing with at the end of uh, his life. And it's just, that's an awful one. I mean, Stephen, that's awful. Yeah, you don't wish that on anybody. And, and, you know, basketball is certainly, or any sport, compared to life, it's it's totally different as we're seeing in this uh, COVID-19 situation. But, yeah, at least from a basketball standpoint, Jerry Sloan was not the type of person I wanted to have over to my house for dinner. That's for sure. He was a dang good player, though, too. I mean, Couple of all stars. Uh, he didn't he play with Phil Jackson? I think he played with him with the Bulls back in the day. I think he did. Yes. Yeah. Just speaking of it, we got we talked about some anniversaries. A a sad one uh, from an Astros uh, fan perspective uh, was this past Saturday. Hard to believe, but it's now been ten years since we lost Jose Lima. Nobody had more fun in a thirty-seven year lifespan than Lima and Stephen. Not sure there were more popular Houston athletes who at least weren't consistent all-stars or future Hall of Famers than Mr. Casa Ole himself. Well, it just goes to show that, you know, talent alone isn't always what is going to endear you to the fans. When you have that kind of personality and when you see the way Jose Lima approached the game when he was on the mound, when he was off the mound, and just how much fun he's had. You know, Jose Lima had the type of personality that just made you remember if you were a boy playing baseball, how fun it was as a kid, that's exactly what Jose Lima reminded you of. He was still a kid out there, you know, playing baseball, or it was as if he was. He, he was It was a grown man's game, but he was still having fun. And that's the one thing I remember about Jose Lima. It's just he had fun playing the game. He, he wasn't the most consistent pitcher, 
you know, and certainly never going to be in the Hall of Fame. But he had one of those personalities that you'll always remember. And you can't accuse him of dogging it and not having fun because he certainly did have fun playing. Yeah, it's funny because you think of this guy as he was all heart as, as a human being and cardiac arrhythmia is what got him. Uh, so it was his heart that failed him. And then fellow Dominican David Ortiz, and I'd forgotten this, dedicated his home run derby win later that year to Lima. And it's amazing, Stephen, that someone who played just five years in Houston, made only one all-star team, owned this city so much. And it goes to show, like you said, if you show fans that you can have fun and you go out there and you try to sign every autograph, they're going to love you. I mean, that's no question. Well, and not only that, he was great with the media too. I mean, he had some some great quips and, you know, if 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 you're portrayed in the media as, as a fun-loving kind of guy, then the fans are going to gravitate towards you. So that, that's another thing. I mean, he, he had a great time with the media in Houston as well. Got one quick story on Lima, and it'd be fun just to see what he would be doing right now. You kind of wonder where he would be. Maybe he's calling games. You, you don't know. But, I mean, <laughs> I'll remember this most about him from just this personal standpoint was when I was shooting the Houston Rockets games for tr- Channel 20 back in 2001, I'd always see Lima in the front row and – he had a drink in his hand and a huge smile on his face. And I can still remember, Stephen, that occasionally we'd make eye contact during the game and Lima would just wink at me almost as, as if to say, <laughs> isn't this a great life? Aren't we having fun? I mean, Lima time was always a blast. Lima time. It, it was always Lima time, whether it was on a baseball field or, or somewhere else. If, if I remember correctly, I think he was a musician. I think he recorded some music. Like I, I believe he recorded an album. Uh, it was uh, Spanish music, Latin American yeah. type music, if if I recall. But uh, yeah, he had some talents that even went beyond the baseball field. He was a musician. Yeah, I don't think he. I don't know if he did this with the Astros, but with the Dodgers, he sang the national anthem. That's right. Yeah, I think it was with the Dodgers. Yeah, he was super talented. Of course, you know you'd always see him dancing a little merengue and yeah, everything. that's true. The dance. I think the the dance is as much of a trademark as his personality was for sure. Yeah. We're going to miss you, Lima. That's, that's for darn. I mean, we just, I can't believe it's been 10 years, 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Some Texans news, a former Texan signed a one-year deal with the Seahawks. They grabbed running back Carlos Hyde. And I haven't seen any details on the contract, but I'm guessing it's much, much cheaper than David Johnson's ridiculous deal. And I'm wondering, Stephen, what the Texans offered him back in March, because if you remember that he turned out a deal, they they did offer him a cut, but they never said what it was. I can't remember exactly what they offered him, but the deal that he reportedly is signing with uh, the Seahawks is supposed to be a one-year deal worth up to $4 million. That's not a lot of money, Robert. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not. And David Johnson's making $10 million a year. I was going to say, I know it's not as much as what David Johnson's getting. And I, I just, you know, it does kind of puzzle me that, I don't. I just don't recall that it was a. It, it wasn't a huge offer, and he obviously turned it down. And yet he signs, you know, a four million dollar one year contract with the Seahawks. So yeah, the Texans could have probably gotten off cheaper if they had just gone ahead and retained Carlos Hyde. So you know, my favorite nickname, Hyde the Ride. I can't call him that anymore because he's with another team. Yeah, I know you'd be. I know you'd be disappointed about that. <laughs> Uh, not sure Hyde will go down as an all-time Texans fan favorite, but it'll be hard not to root for DeAndre Hopkins, even though he's no longer in Houston, which made me ask the question, Stephen, 
Who were some of your favorite NFL players who didn't play in Houston? Because, you know, it's like DeAndre, I I don't know. I can't, I'm not going to be able to root against the guy. So I just want to go back and forth with you a little bit. Maybe we can each uh, name one. And and I think I might have a couple more than you, but uh, it's kind of fun because it's, you know, sometimes you, you find a guy on another team and you're like, I can't help but liking this guy. Well, if you're talking about current players, I would have to say Drew Brees is one of my favorites. Now, I'm a little partial. Uh, he did go to school here in Austin. He went to Westlake High School. and uh, But Drew Brees, not only has he, I mean, just the fact that there's only a handful of quarterbacks, you know, Tom Brady, of course, being another one, and a few others that are playing into his 40s. But Drew Brees has done a lot for the city of New Orleans, you know, especially when uh, uh, Katrina Katrina came along. He did a lot for the city and has just been a fan favorite in New Orleans. He's going to come back for one more year. I'd have to say Drew Brees is one of my favorite non-Houston type football players. I was trying to think of modern day guys and it was, it's hard for me to come up with modern day guys. I was thinking maybe, you know, I'd probably be a big fan of JJ if he was, were with another team, but yeah, for sure. You know, most of the guys on my list were guys I loved as a child. And I'm going to start with the, I think this guy's probably on your list too. He wore number 34, just like the pantheon of my Houston sports heroes growing up, <laughs> Nolan Earl and Dream. You got an idea where I'm going with this Walter one? Walter Payton, maybe? Oh, I loved Sweetness. Yeah, you can't you can't help but love Walter Payton. Yeah. You know, I love to hear him talk. He he had that kind of that high-pitched voice. It was so distinctive. I mean, you knew it was Walter Payton when you heard him talk. And uh, yeah, one of the greatest running backs of all time, sure. But I always just felt like he was a very class guy. I know there was a book that came out. Jeff Perlman wrote it uh, several years ago. It was kind of controversial, some things apparently that Walter Payton did. But you didn't know that at the time when he was playing, you know. And uh, But I just I, – Walter was definitely one of my favorites from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, go back into the archive. Listen to the Vernon Perry interview because Vernon – played with Walter at, at Jackson State. And and, and I, I told a story. I think I told the story, Stephen, you can remind me if I, I did or didn't. But, you know, I met Walter back when I was in college. And I was uh, basically, he was in town. Oh, he was in town for, um, he was at, at the University of Missouri trying to get a NFL team in St. Louis. He was trying hmm. to, uh, as part of an ownership team, bring an NFL team to St. Louis. But he comes in, he gives a little press conference. He's got the tie and the whole thing, and he's all formal. But then he goes over and talks to the University of Missouri football team. And I was in the room and got to witness the whole speech and, and, and talk that he gave. Not, it didn't even feel like a speech. It was just like he was, he was ta- trying to talk to those guys on their level. And yeah. this was in the Missouri football. This was like in one of their rooms that they would have like a meeting room or something like that. And I'm just – watching over on this side and I've got a camera, you know, you get some shots of, of him talking to the guys. And then I'll just never forget that, that just how, you know, he just could talk to those guys on their level and just got so real with them about what they needed to do and how they needed to be as, as a football player. And I just wish I could remember, I wish I could remember some of the details, but the one thing that just sticks out so much was it's all over with, and Earl, I mean, uh, Walter, I just said Earl accidentally. <laughs> 34, yeah. But uh, Walter walks over to me and just, it, I was the first person that he came over to and he sticks his hand out and he had that 
big bear paw of a hand. I noticed as I, as I shook his hand, just like, uh, you know, the Chicago bears, he had a bear paw and it just, he, he just immediately uh, thanked me for coming. And he just, there was such a genuineness in the way he looked at you and just, he had a, pre- he had it, he had that presence. He had it. It's, it's that it factor that we talk about so much with athletes and Walter Payton certainly had it. And that doesn't surprise me because, like I said, he just seemed like such an upstanding guy, very class act, you know, treated people like people. He didn't look down on anybody that I ever heard about. So that doesn't surprise me at all. And he had the heart of somebody like I, we keep mentioning his name, but Earl Campbell. I mean, he he wouldn't go down. He wouldn't go down. I don't know that he did, you know, flip defensive players the way Earl did. But <laughs> no. yeah, he was certainly stubborn. Uh, as Earl, as far as not going down, that's for sure. Oh, he had some magical runs though, where he knocked some guys oh, yeah. over and yeah, ran through did. some guys. Uh, l- let me let me let me try another one because you 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 and I both did Walter, and and I'm going to go with somebody that you know is a little kid without a bunch of athletic ability. Stephen, little Robbie Land loved to play wide receiver in the backyard. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. So one of my guys without question is a guy who was cut from the Oilers after four preseason games. So I, I don't count this guy as necessarily somebody that plays in Houston. I'm too young to remember him being cut, but I bet you, I bet you, you know who I'm talking about, Stephen. You got, you got an idea? Oh, you're, you're asking me to try to remember. Okay. How old were you now? <laughs> oh, I, this was, I was pretty little at the time when he got cut by the, I mean, I don't remember him getting cut by the Oilers. Let me put it that way. But I, I absolutely remember uh, him. Could you be talking about Steve Largent by chance? Oh, there you go. Yeah. 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 Steve Largent. Well, yeah, I would say you'd have to count him because he did not play regular season. He, he was in the preseason with them. And he honestly, cause I remember watching him play that year in the preseason I mean, just like everybody else, I didn't think much of him. He wasn't flashy. He certainly wasn't fast. But the Oilers let him get away, and the rest is history. The thing about Steve Largent is not only it seemed like he caught everything, but his routes were just so precise. He was always where he was supposed to be and just so tough. I mean, if if, if you threw it to him and he's in a crowd, they're going to hit him. But the ball's not coming loose, and Largent's definitely one of my guys. Well, and and it just goes to prove you don't you know speed alone doesn't make a great wide receiver. I mean, you could run a four two forty, but if you can't catch the ball, it doesn't matter. I mean, think of all the track stars like Ronaldo, Nehemiah, and several others who tried to play football. Well, you still got to catch the ball before you can run. And Steve Largent, he didn't have the speed, but he definitely had the hands, and that's what that's what made him who he was. Who else do you got? Who else were you a fan of as a kid? Well, this is one that I'm going to, this was a personal one for me. And it's Roger Staubach. Now, you have to understand, I did not like the Dallas Cowboys back in the 70s and 80s. Good. when the Because I was an Oilers fan. So naturally, I was a Cowboy hater, okay? I, I didn't like Roger Staubach, didn't like anybody on the Cowboys. But something happened one day that while it didn't make me become a Cowboy fan, it did make, I did have to grudgingly become a fan of this individual. And that's Roger Staubach. Before I tell the story, Robert, I'm going to reveal something that your listeners probably don't know about me. And that is I'm blind. I, I am totally blind. And yet there is a sport, a modified form of baseball for the blind called Beep Baseball. 
And there was an article in the paper about me playing beat baseball in Houston. Well, I had an aunt who, she was just one of those people. You know, she, even if she didn't know you, she knew you. And I don't know what prompted her to do this, but she clipped the article out of the paper. I don't know if she was a big Cowboy fan or what. She lived in the Temple area back then. So I guess it was on the way to Dallas. But Roger Staubach, of course, was involved in a lot of um, children's, I, I was a teenager by this point. Roger Staubach was involved in a lot of charities and Special Olympics and things for disabled children. So I guess that's what prompted my aunt to send him a copy of this article about me playing beat baseball. And one day I, I go check the mail and there is a letter addressed to me from Roger Staubach. Now, at first, of course, I'm like, this is a joke. I mean, Roger Staubach doesn't even know who I am, and I'm certainly not a cowboy fan, so <laughs> what is this about? So I open the letter, and I don't remember it word for word, but I, I think it said something like, uh, Dear Stephen, your Aunt Betsy sent me an article in the paper about you playing beat baseball, and I just want you to know that you are an inspiration. Keep it up. Sincerely, Roger Staubach. So, Robert, how can you not at least have some grudging respect and admiration for a guy, even on a team that you don't like, when he sends you a personal letter, unsolicited, because I had never written to Roger Staubach, and I'll tell you something else. I wrote back to him. There was going to be a tournament coming up in the Dallas area, and I wrote him a letter, and I invited him to come to the tournament. Well, he wasn't able to come, but you know what? He wrote me back again. And said, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I wish I could, but I have some other commitments, but I appreciate you inviting me. So I not only got one, but I got two letters from Roger Staubach. That's a hell of a story. And, and yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Staubach because, you know, I, I, I can't think of another cowboy that I respected as much as Staubach. And he was somebody that you couldn't help, but not only have a respect for, but you, you, you couldn't help but like him a little bit. He, he had... There was a regalness to Roger Staubach. There was a, this was a guy that, you know, he had been in the Navy. He had been out for a few years. You know, we talked about David Robinson earlier, a similar situation right, right. where he had to he had to come back. But he, I mean, did you ever hear? There was never. Not only was there never a bad story about Roger, it was usually one really great story after another. And where you got to these Cowboys, you know, there was some back in that day, the North Dallas 40 era. Yeah, the two tall Jones and the Hollywood Hendersons and guys like that. Yeah. Yeah, there was also, but there's also the, you know, the, the later Cowboys, which was a whole other sort right. of mess and the Michael Irvins and, and, and those guys. Right. But Stallback, he was the most un-Cowboy really because he was such a good guy off the field, on the field. Um, and he, I mean, as a player, uh, the game was never over with Staubach. I mean, he would figure out a way. He was kind of fun to watch, you know, scrambling in the backfield and all of a sudden hitting somebody just when you don't think. He's, he's fun to watch as long as you're not playing him like the, the Oilers were on like a, a Thanksgiving game or something like that. Well, you know, he almost brought the Cowboys back on that Thanksgiving day in 1979 when they were playing the Oilers and they sacked him at the very end. I remember a preseason game when Roger Staubach, it was – I want to say it was in 76, 75, one of those years. The Oilers were ahead like 26 to 3, and Staubach brings them back, and they beat the Oilers in a preseason game. It was crazy. But, yeah, he was one of those players that just a, a class by himself and 
but but I still never would have dreamed something like that would happen to me where I'd actually get a personal letter from him and then write him back and then he writes me again. I mean that's that that just kind of underscores what you were just talking about. Yeah, that's an incredible story. And I'm gonna cheat. I'm gonna cheat a little bit on the next guy because he did play for the Oilers for a couple of years. My next guy on the list, but I I was just a. I think I was one or something like that when he left Houston. Maybe two or something. I'm, and I'm talking about the great Charlie Joyner. Wow. He's yeah. also without question one of the big mistakes in Oilers history. He was a fourth round pick when they were in the AFL. They should have never let him go. And Joyner actually started his career as a defensive back with the Oilers before they moved him to receiver. That's hard to believe. Yeah. And here's a fun fact, Stephen. When Joyner retired, this is this is impressive. He was the NFL leader in receptions, yards, and games played by a wide receiver and at age 39, retired as the oldest receiver in NFL history. Well, the Oilers obviously didn't know how to scout wide receivers. Steve Largent. Charlie Joyner, um, it's it's amazing that they didn't let Kenny Burrow get away or Ernest Givens or, you know, go down the list of the wide receivers that they did have that were, you know, really good. So, yeah, Charlie Joyner, I, I, they had ju- I think I had just started following the Oilers when Charlie Joyner went to the Chargers. So I didn't really get to see him play much as an Oiler. But, uh, yeah, he went on to have a great career with the Chargers for sure. He was kind of the basketball player that you felt like he would have been the playing with the old man game on the pickup courts. Uh, yeah. he, he just yeah. knew where to be. He knew what to do. And the Chargers were fun under Eric Coriel and you had Fouts. And, you know, back in the day, it was Jefferson and Kellen Winslow. And I mean, they had all these weapons. And of course, you know, that's why the them beating the, the Oilers beating them back at that 79 game that we talked about with Vernon Perry was such a big deal, but you know, Joyner very similar to Steve Largent. You know, I, I couldn't relate to blazing speed. I was slow, right. Steven. I was slow. <laughs> well, and here's something else that I remember now. Uh, it was in the mid seventies and the Oilers, this was a regular season game. The Oilers were playing the chargers and Charlie Joyner caught a pass and he, he went down but apparently nobody touched him. And so he gets up and he runs the ball for a touchdown. The score was tied. I I want to say it was 24-24. It was in the fourth quarter and the game was tied. Charlie Joyner scores a touchdown for the Chargers against his former team. And they miss the extra point. So it's 30-24. to 24. The Oilers had a chance to win. They did not. So Charlie Joyner came back to haunt his old, old team, albeit quite a few years later on a rather controversial play when he, he, he went down, apparently he got back up because nobody touched him and ran the rest of the way for a touchdown and won the game. Who else is on your list? Do you have uh, maybe a guy from that era or anybody currently? Well, I hate to keep referring to Cowboys, although he, when I met him, it was way after the Cowboys. It was in the 80s when I met him, and that was Bob Lilly. I mean, another class guy, another Hall of Famer. Uh, he walked into a radio station I was working for at the time, and it wasn't a sports station, and it was totally unexpected. And just the nicest guy. I mean, I introduced myself. We talked a couple minutes. He, I think he even teased me when he found out I was from Houston and was an Oiler fan. But uh, there's another class guy that, while I didn't really get to see him play a whole lot, I, I did in the early 70s. But uh, Bob Lilly was another one that, you know, from a personal standpoint, I, I had to say he was a very stand-up guy. He was Mr. Cowboy. That was his nickname. And 
you know, he was born in, in Texas, only Texas, uh, 11 time pro bowl. I mean, just one is you talk about great, great player, seven time, first team, all pro. He was on the NFL's 75th anniversary, all time team and the hundredth anniversary, all time team. So, you know, there's nothing, nothing wrong with that choice. And the guy I got next on my list, he's not a hall of famer, but everybody knows who I'm talking about here. It's not exactly original, but Steven, he knew football. He knew baseball and he knew just about everything else. And I think you're probably figuring out where I'm going with this one. <laughs> Bo, Bo knows Bo, right? Yeah, Bo knows. You're talking about Bo Jackson. Oh, right? my goodness. I loved watching him and, and just, you know, he's running over a guy. He's just beating everybody like they're standing still. Obviously, you know what he did in baseball. I remember, I, I, have I told the story about seeing him? play at a Royals game. Do you remember me telling this story? I don't think so. So let's go back to 1989. Remember in the all-star game, he hits that leadoff home run that everybody remembers. Vince Gulley yeah. with the call. And so I go to see him and they're playing the A's and it's the Bash brothers. And batting practice was just incredible because it was Bo and Canseco and McGuire. And, you know, we didn't know what was going on with those guys back in the day. But, you know, you had, you know, you had Ricky Henderson on that A's team and George Brett was with the Royals. And this was at what's now a Kauffman Stadium, but it was his Royal Stadium back back then. And the thing that was uh, amazing was that I was sitting out in left field. So I had Bo Jackson in left field and I had Ricky Henderson in left field. And I remember Bo hitting balls that were made Conseco and McGuire's in batting practice look like they were shallow pop home runs because he was hitting them pretty much just about out of the ballpark, just about over the back fence of Royal Stadium. And, and here's my favorite story is, so Bo uh, is playing left field, uh, A's are up, and Ricky Henderson, uh, the, the all-time base stealer, gets caught stealing second base. And Ricky comes running out to left field when the inning ends after getting caught caught stealing. And one of the guys in left field, one of the Royals fans yells, Hey, Ricky, Bo knows leadoff. Do you know leadoff? <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. Oh, oh man. I love it. And, and I got to see him play football too because he, he played with the, he played against the Chiefs with the Raiders. And I remember giving him a standing ovation. It was a terrible weather day, but just I remember him coming out on the field and I was just so excited because. Man, I got to see Bo Jackson in person in football after I'd already seen him play baseball. So that was cool. Wow, I mean that's quite a treat. So yeah, you got a double a double dose of Bo, and you know one has to wonder what what would have happened if that hip injury hadn't come along. How much longer could he have done that? Oh, it just kills me. That that's one of those what if we talked about Ralph Sampson last week, and Bo Jackson's another one of those like uh, just even more so. He was just so much fun, so much fun. Well, I have one more, and this is from the 90s, and uh, he's a Florida guy. Of course, he played at the University of Florida and uh, had a pretty good career in the NFL, and he's a running back, and that's Warwick Dunn. And I can't remember, I, I guess what inspired me is, I, I don't remember if he was still playing at Florida, or he might have just started playing in the NFL, but Sports Illustrated did a nice piece on him. And it's quite a story, a very sad story. His mom was a police officer. He was a single parent. And uh, she was shot and killed in the line of duty when Warwick was, uh, I believe, a teenager. And, you know, he overcame that, 
played, of course, uh, had a great college career at Florida, had a nice career in the NFL. And even today, he's still helping people. He's giving back. I, I read an article on him recently that, you know, he's taken the inspiration that his mother, you know, the things that she taught him when she was alive. So I think just, you know, from watching him play both college and the NFL and just reading that story, Warwick Dunn has to be one of my favorite non-Houston players of all time, football-wise. Just an incredible human being. And if you remember, Stephen, Deshaun Watson was 11 years old and his family was not doing well and Habitat for Humanity came in and Warwick Dunn came in and built the house for his family. He sure did. Yep, he was one, and Deshaun Watson was very inspired by that. Um, and that's that's one of the things... You know, and work done still continues to do that kind of work even today. All right. A couple of unoriginal ones that I, I mean, I, I, I think you'll agree with these, uh, Stephen, even though I, I, you, you didn't have them on your list. But Randall Cunningham and Barry Sanders, I mean, come on. Uh, those guys were just <laughs> ridiculous. to watch. Cunningham was so far ahead of his time in, in a way. And Barry Sanders, I mean, just as far as running backs go. Uh, I, everybody loved watching Barry play, but I, I'm going to go here. How about this one? Here, here's an old school guy. Well, who, let me, before you go there, let me get to Barry okay. Sanders for a second. Cause if there's one non Houston player that I always felt bad who never got to a super bowl, that would be Barry Sanders because sure. if anybody deserved it, he certainly did. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and he was appointment viewing. He was like, whatever's going on. You know, that was a great, it was a great thing that the Lions were always on Thanksgiving because you were like, okay, I get to see Barry Sanders on Thanksgiving. That That's better than turkey. Yeah, it's better than turkey. And at least, you know, that's a day that Detroit, they, they usually played well in Thanksgiving games, no matter how bad they were. But Barry Sanders, I mean, he was one of the few bright spots of that era with the Lions. All right. My, my really old school guy, and this is somebody that I, I, I became fascinated by when I watched him on NFL films and you would see the old film of him. And also he was portrayed, you know, just lovingly and brilliantly as a genuinely good person in the movie, Brian's song. And I'm, I'm sure you can figure this one out, Steven, uh, where I'm going. Gale Sayers, right? Oh yeah. Gale Sayers. Yeah. yeah. I never got to watch him play and, you know, shortened career. One of the best running backs in history for the career he had certainly would be Gale Sayers. And had to totally reinvent himself. I mean, he was a guy that, you know, he was Barry Sanders, but maybe even more electric with his speed and his ability to cut. And they had him on special teams and he's returning kicks and punts for touchdowns. And he's doing all of that. And then he has that traumatic knee injury. And if you see the movie, Brian's song, they show what happened there. And he's got to try to come back from the knee injury. And he had like a season where he couldn't run more than 20 yards any in any carry that year, but still managed to gut out a, a, a thousand yard season. And this was back, you know, this was when they had fewer games. So Gail Sears, you know, you, you, you just never hear a bad word about, he's another one of those guys. You talk about Stallback and, and some of these guys on the list that we're going through and, and Gail Sears was just, he was, he's always been beloved. And, and, and you know, he has to be something special for me to like him. Cause you know, I go, I go to Mizzou and he's a Kansas guy. Oh, there you go. Well, that, that, that says it right there. And, you know, I think I remember when Barry Sanders came out, a lot of people were comparing him to Gail Sayers and Gail Sayers. Yeah. There were fewer games back when he played, 
they also didn't have near the medical advances that they have now, you know, even with knee injuries. But, yeah, just so sad. A, a shortened career, but such a great back just, you know, for him to, to be able to do what he did. Any other news you got for us this week? Anything uh, Houston-related? Well, of course, this past weekend, you know, there's no hardly any sports that that we can watch. I mean, we had the match with Tiger and Phil and Tom and Peyton, but, you know, the Memorial Day weekend, if, if you're a racing fan, kind of a big hole, a gaping hole there with the Indianapolis 500 not taking place. Uh, it's going to be rescheduled for August. A.J. Foyt is still going strong. You know, he still owns a racing team. I think he's 85 years old, but he still owns a racing team. And this is uh, here talking about another class guy. I know this isn't football, but A.J. Foyt, you know, certainly one of the class guys in sports, period. Even though he's losing a lot of money, he is still paying his his uh, team, his employees, a lot of them have been with him for years, and as he put it, he said, I just, you know, I, these people have been with me for a long time. I'm not going to let them down. So he's continued to pay his team despite the fact that he's losing money because there's hardly been any racing. And uh, there's going to be, of course, the Texas Motor Speedway race coming up, I think, in a week or two, and then Indy in August. But A.J. Foyt, when he goes to Indy in August as an owner – it will be his 63rd, if I counted right, Indy 500 as a driver and as a race owner. That's pretty incredible. I'm not going to fact check you on the number, but I just remember he remember he just got in the Hall of Fame, and we just saw him talk a little bit at the at the Houston yeah. Sports Awards, the Houston Sports Hall of Fame. He got he got into so that was that yeah, was cool. it was just last year. Uh, and like I said, he's 85 and he's still going strong. But just a just a great story where we've been talking. The last few weeks about people kind of stepping stepping up to help others during this COVID-19 crisis. Well, you can add A.J. Foyt to the list, just continuing to pay his team, you know, despite the fact that there hasn't been much, haven't been much revenue, if any, coming in at all. And if I could pick out a name, I mean, I'd love to be named A.J. Foyt. What a, what a great name. That's almost as good as J.J. Watt, isn't it? I yeah. mean, they're pretty close, pretty similar. A lot of, you know, some J's in there and yeah. Foyt, Watt. You know, you, you could say their last names and people would know who you're talking about. Yeah, Foyt, he, he, when, you, when, when we were growing up, he was the guy. He was racing. This was before Dale Earnhardt. You know, he was racing. Was AJ, A.J. Foyt was racing. Well, he was the first one to win for Indy 500s. So, you know, that put him in a class by himself. And, uh, of course, uh, yeah, like I said, he was the first one. Uh, but, yeah, he was definitely the race. I mean, you had Mario Andretti and right. you had Richard Petty. You had those guys, but they weren't as good as A.J. Foyt, in my opinion. Yeah, Foyt sort of set the scene for Andretti, and Andretti became the guy. That's another great name, Mario Andretti. I mean, that's – yeah. oh, my goodness. What? A, give me any of those names. Uh, absolutely fantastic. But – uh Boy, uh, just want to remind listeners that if you're if you're looking for something to take you away from your current troubles, and we're talking about a little history, and that's what you, we we just got to talk about right now is till we get some <laughs> sports going up and running. And you know, we got these Throwback Thursday podcasts, just fun conversations from the past seven years about Houston sports history that we've done on the show. And definitely go back into the archive. You just look for that little Throwback Thursday in parentheses, and you can find all of those. So. 
Uh, we're gonna have another one this week. Uh, should I? Te- I'm not gonna tease it. Just just keep an eye out for it. It's a good one. Just I make think. them listen, right? Yeah. yeah. You just gotta listen. Absolutely. And 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 if you've got maybe you've got a football player that you know an NFL player that you're like, man, I love that guy growing up, and you got a story behind it, or you know, if you got a question for us or whatever, you can send us an audio message. That'd be something you could just do with your phone and, and email us in our email address. It's in every single show description info at houstonsportstalk.net and of course you know we're on twitter we're on facebook we want your feedback your questions or topics or anything uh, that you got for us but uh other than that have a great weekend everybody and stay healthy and safe you're listening to houston sports talk don't forget to follow houston sports talk on facebook and twitter subscribe to us on itunes spotify the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.